Hello and welcome to Supercharged with me, Anna Geary. This is a show about health and well-being. So at a time like this, it would be remiss of us not to offer our condolences to the families and the people of Creeshlock in County Donegal following such recent tragic events. You may remember that we devoted an entire programme to grief and its many forms earlier in the year. So we thought it would be helpful to talk to psychologist Nee Fitzpatrick about how best to deal with collective grief. Neve, thank you for talking to me this evening. Just to ask you, like, what happens in a community after a major tragedy like this? Like, how can they begin to process it? Yeah, well, what happens there is really collective grief comes in. You have people who, throughout this community in Creeshlock, it's their neighbours, mm-hmm. it's their classmates, it's their loved ones, it's their, you know, families who have died in this tragedy. And so there's a collective grief in the community there. There's also a collective grief, I think, nationwide and actually beyond for this. And so we feel pain for their pain, even those of us who don't know somebody who has died in Creeshlock. And that collective grief locally in the community spreads out to the wider community because what this is, is it's traumatic loss. Mm-hmm. You know, it's loss, which all loss is very difficult, but it's loss plus shock. And then it has trauma layered on top of that. And and linked in with that is this piece, I suppose, really around how these people died. So if you think about doing something so normal, something so ordinary that most of us do, you know, all the time, we go to visit somewhere like a shop or a petrol station or somebody's living in their home, something so ordinary and it to end like this. It's just it's unthinkable. And there's they have no warning. Mm-hmm. There were no goodbyes. And what happens is for those in the community there with those no goodbyes, it's somebody who they maybe saw that morning, who left the house that morning and said goodbye or left at lunchtime or they saw 15 minutes before. And that brings home to them in that community the fragility of life. And also to those of us, I suppose, on the outside watching the pain of this community. And we have to remember that for Creeshlock, all of this is coming at a time when you know, people are depleted after pandemic and so many other yeah. tough times. So all of that has to be taken into account. And I think that collective grieving that we all, they feel their pain, we feel that pain for their pain. That's what's really going on now. And like, how will this grief like develop in, in the coming days and weeks and months? Yeah. But I always describe traumatic loss as being it's like getting a shot of anaesthetic into the arm because the the this is too big. It's too big to take in at once. Understanding what has happened, the magnitude of the loss of these beautiful people mm-hmm. is just too enormous, whether it's your person who has died and you've lost them and your community who is bereaved and the wider. It's just too big. So there's a really, I suppose, the system goes into shock. Those who are bereaved, um, both immediately and in the wider sense, they would go into shock perhaps in the beginning, that shot of anaesthetic. And it's really around numbness. It's about disbelief. You'll find people will have this real sense in the coming days and weeks and months, really, of it being surreal. And and I think what I would say to people there is there is no right or wrong as to how to feel. So don't think about, you know, 
I'm bereaved, I'm grieving, so therefore I need to be doing any stages. You know, mm. I shouldn't I shouldn't have to feel this or that. So some people are going to cry or be angry, others will withdraw. Allow for those differences and just yeah. let yourself feel what you feel. And even a lot of people like outside the Creechlock community are just wondering like like how can they support and help this community of people? Yeah, well, I think what will happen there is in the beginning, so things like the rituals of the wake and the funeral, they're going to help people Mm -hmm. in the first days. But what's really going to happen for the rest of us, I suppose, is, you know, that old Irish tradition of metal. So the idea of coming together to help people, that's already happening. And we need to keep that going because what we need to do is fold in around people. And very much now in the early days, of course, there's emotional support needed, but actually it's really about surviving for them now. So often it's more the practical support that's needed. So I see, for example, that the Red Cross by on post, they're taking dono- yes. donations in post office from tomorrow. And that will give practical help for those impacted. Yeah. That's really what a lot of us can do. What I would say to people is a community in this instance is overwhelmed. They can be overwhelmed by this unspeakable tragedy. So we don't need to overwhelm them more. Mm-hmm. It's about finding out what they need and getting them. And so let the systems and services who do that get on with that job, really. And just to, to finish up, Neve, like what message do you want to send to the people of Creechlock this evening? Well, the first thing I would say to them is you will survive this. I know mm-hmm. that may sound a really strange thing to say, but I think it's important to know. You will be imprinted, you are imprinted and you will be imprinted by this catastrophic loss. What I mean by that is you're changed by it. What's going to happen is over time, you accommodate their loss into your into your own lives, but you always honour them. You always remember them as a community. You will always bring these people with you. And to the community of Krishlok, I would say, you know, there will be a day and you will live your lives again. You might mm-hmm. think that day never come but you'll smile again you'll laugh again you'll sing again but alongside that you're not going to let your people be forgotten and that doesn't make any of this okay because it's not all right but it can help you carry their loss and you will survive this. Neve Fitzpatrick psychologist thank you so much for speaking with us this evening on Supercharged and of course people can listen to our grief episode on the RTE Radio Player app or wherever you get your podcasts. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. Now, our main topic this evening is probably one of the most sensitive and quite frankly awkward subjects to chat about. Like, I know that word taboo is thrown around a lot, but I don't know, it definitely applies here, I think. Now, just a disclaimer before we start, it is adult content and it's not suitable for young children. So just to bear that in mind, because... We're talking about sex. And full disclosure, right? I'm sitting here, I'm 35, I'm married. I haven't even asked a question about sex yet and already I find myself blushing a little. Now you can't see me, but just take my word for it. I can feel it. So like even that in itself, doesn't it beg the question, why is it that we get so embarrassed, mortified even, speaking about sex? So I conducted one of my polls on Instagram during the week. You know we love a good poll here in Supercharged. And almost 60% of you said you were uncomfortable talking to your partner about sex. 60%. And it's not that you won't have it. You just won't talk about it. So this evening, let's change that. I'm here with a panel of experts and they are here to answer your questions. 
about all the things that you want to know when it comes to sex. So there might be questions that you're too embarrassed about to ask yourself. So you know what? Let me ask them on your behalf. I'm going to be talking to a psychotherapist, a GP and a physiotherapist. So I don't know, like whether it's you know, how to have a conversation about sex. Maybe it's something along the lines of how to deal with performance issues. Maybe it's just how to improve your sex life. Maybe it's actually a question around how much sex should we actually be having? Please just send in your questions. It's anonymous, so don't be shy. You can text me on 51551 or email at supercharged at rte.ie. Now, a lot of you have already been getting in touch letting us know but where you actually learned about sex. Hi Anna, so I was about six or seven when I first found out about sex. I was one of 11 children and I had found this pregnancy book that my mother had hidden at home. So I decided to take me and my little brother and the book down to the cow shed to have a gawk. So we were sat below anyways and we were going through the pages and all of a sudden we came across this whole section on how babies were made. Oh Lord God, actually to this day I'd say we're both still scarred to the core. I first learnt about sex from my parents. I remember them sitting me down. But I don't remember what they said or how they told me about it. But what I do remember is them going on and on about how terrible it was for them growing up that sex was never talked about. And I realise now that I have my own kids growing up that maybe the whole situation of them telling me about it was less about learning about sex for us as kids, but more about them getting over some trauma from how sex was treated in their generation when they were growing up. Hi, Anna. Well, my lovely Tipperary mum told me to stay away from willies when I got my periods um, when I was 11. So that was my uh, advice. My parents locked me in a room with a book and I remember from the book that it had something to do with uh, jigsaw puzzles fitting together and there was drawings of naked bodies in it. It's a pretty vivid uh, memory that I have. When I was about 11, my mum decided to tell me about the birds and the bees and I actually didn't believe her, so I went and asked my dad. Told him would he believe what mum was after telling me and he said, yeah, it's all true, so I don't know, I probably was a bit traumatised, but yeah. <laughs> That's how I found out about the birds and the bees. I don't think we got any education at all. My dealings with it was probably gossip from first year onwards, being thrown in the deep end and pretty much just winging it and I'd say that's what most people like of our generation though there was there was no talk about it. it was very taboo it was you wait till you get married and oh god don't talk about that the only thing they educated you about was your period I think there should be a lot more education there should be a lot more talk about it. I don't think it should be taboo sex is pleasure people are entitled to pleasure themselves and be happy so the more we talk about it the better that is just a flavour of some of the messages that we got in, like whether people were saying they learned from their siblings or by accident, from books, down the cow shed. There is, there's such a variety of places and ways that we learn about sex, but, but often we talk about it in secret or we learn about it by accident. So with me now in studio to talk more about sex are psychosexual therapy trainer and director of counselling at Trinity College, Trish Murphy, and GP Dr Stephen Murphy. Welcome to Supercharged. Thank Let's you. open Thanks up so. the conversation about sex. So Trish, if I can come to you first and just ask the question, 
Why don't we talk about sex? <laughs> I think it's something to do with a sense of inadequacy that everybody feels, oh my God, I'll get it wrong and I'll damage them for life. Um, and so we don't talk about it because we're so concerned about getting it right and not, you know, not traumatising them like, like, like the people in the Vox Pop because they, some of them sound quite traumatised. So I have to say that all of us talking about it over dinner, in the library, on the bus would be awesome. And from my perspective, that would be the big difference. We don't have to get it right. We should just talk about it anyway. And where like, where are we getting our information from now, Stephen? Like you, you heard of the variety of places that they're, they're getting it from in the past. Oh, I would like to think that we've improved marginally since maybe some of these people in your Vox Pop were actually informed. But I'm not sure that it really changes very much. We get our information from a variety of different sources. Parents, obviously, is a big one. Teachers is a big one. And your best friend is always a big one. Your Mm -hmm. best friend may or may not have the correct information. But often when you cobble it together, uh, you kind of arrive at where you need to be. And then after that, like most things in life, it's a big, long learning experience. And actually mentioning parents, because we did hear some people saying they learn from their parents, but that can be a very difficult and awkward conversation to have. So, you know, but it's a very important one. So, like, how do parents broach the topic of sex with their kids and, and maybe even Trish, at what age they should be doing that? OK, so I think the first thing you do is you use this programme and you say, listen, I was I was there's this programme on last night and they were talking about sex and when was it appropriate? And I thought I'd ask you, what do you think about that? So you start off, use anything to open the conversation. Um, there's no age too young. Uh, the danger is parents usually leave it too late. They leave it until kids are in their teens, which is way too late. Um, so kids need to know about it from quite a young age and it always needs to be appropriate. Usually they'll tell you when it's appropriate because they'll walk away because they've had enough or they'll ask you again or they'll be bored or whatever it is. So I wouldn't worry about causing damage and you don't have to know everything. I also think that leaving some really good books lying around the place is really useful, particularly on relationships and sex and relationships because your kids can pick it up and ask you a question that comes from it. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about that often they, they'll read from biology books or, you know, pregnancy books. But as you said, it's the relationship side of it is just as important. And like I know, like there is like parents resources and just to mention it there's something for four to seven year olds called making the big talk many small talks and I, when I saw that was for four to seven year olds I couldn't believe it but as you said we need to start speaking about it earlier and there's also the website sexualwellbeing.ie if that helps too. Now Trish like what are the sexual issues that you come across in your work? So, of course, I'm only getting the problems, Mm -hmm. really. So that's just, we have to be straight about that. Everything from erectile dysfunction, from lack of desire or that the desire with the partner is is very different, um, being unable to orgasm. Um, having, you know, difficulties with some kind of obsessions, probably to do with porn. Um, every, I mean, we're human beings. So and our sexuality and sense of attractiveness are core to who we are. So anything that impinges on that or blocks it is going to present an issue. And some people suffer for years before they do anything about it. And then they have the pattern as well as the original issue to deal with. Well, we're going to deal with a lot of those issues today because we have had <coughs> questions in from listeners about a lot of those subjects you've mentioned. But Stephen, like for you in, in your GP practice, like what kind of sexual related questions do patients ask and, and how do they ask them? I suppose they come down to two main uh, topics. Um, there's 
the one where there's, say, a physical problem. <laughs> so um, for no particular reason or in no particular order, maybe menopause or women find sex can become physically uncomfortable. So that's a relatively easy thing to deal with. The menopause isn't relatively easy, but that, that particular aspect of it is relatively easy to deal with because usually a little bit of estrogen, either locally or, or, or in a pill or a patch, okay. uh, will often solve that problem. But then... <clears throat> The more nebulous ones that come along where somebody is distressed or somebody is unhappy, uh, it's very difficult as a general practitioner in a relatively short space of time to, to explore all the areas that you'd like to explore. I mean, I think general practice appointments sometimes should be a minimum of an hour and sometimes two, but obviously that's just not even remotely possible, mm. practical. So you have to try and sort of pick up on things relatively, uh, relatively quickly, relatively easily, and just ascertain that there is maybe a psychological problem quite apart from a physical problem. There's plenty of physical problems, but the psychological problems are usually a bit more difficult to tease out. And like, are people comfortable <clears> asking <throat> questions to you about sex? Some people are very comfortable and other people sit and squirm and other people change the subject and other people want to know more. And it, it, it's very varied. It's as varied as, as, as people are. I mean, I don't think there's a general practitioner in the country who's, who's been properly trained who doesn't have some idea of how to deal with this. Um, the difficulty is where people sort of think that the general practitioner is there just for coughs, colds, bad chests and referral letters and letters for the council. It's, it's very far from that. Well, just looking at some of the questions that have come in, I suppose we may as well just get straight into them because there are so many. I'm quite conscious that we want to answer as many as possible. One has come in around erectile dysfunction um, and the treatment that might be there for it or even the possible causes of it because it is affecting their relationship. OK, this is a really big subject, so I'm just going to do a few little sort of flavour touches. OK, I think it is unlikely that there is a man walking around today who hasn't at, no, at any stage had a problem with erectile dysfunction, OK? It's very common. It becomes more common as we get older, and as we get older, the reasons for it tend to change. So in younger men, there's usually a psychological reason. Um, a not an infrequent one that I see is a young man who has suddenly found the woman of his dreams and he's really trying to impress her. And of course, the one thing that he's trying to impress her with just doesn't work. Um, and that's a real downer. Uh, as men get older, we get more cardiovascular disease, we get more more of everything, basically. Um, and so it, it can then become more of a problem. Um, but it's it's very common. So, so how do men treat it? Like, you know, we know now that Viagra can be bought over the counter, yeah. but are there other treatments, <clears throat> other ways to deal with it? Well, I always think it's really important to, to, to talk to the man because it's usually the man that presents. Sometimes I get a bit of forewarning because his wife, his partner, his spouse, whatever, will come down and say, by the way, I'm sending him in to talk to you because. Okay. So at least I have some idea. And it is never the first thing he brings up. He always brings up the pain in his toe or his bad back or something first. And then we get round to that. It's just the way men do these things. You just have to get used to it. Um, um, so uh, they they bring it up in all sorts of different ways, um, and it's important that we are receptive to it. Now, some men just come straight out and say, listen, I'm having, tr having trouble getting erections. And I say, OK, fine. So we go back, we take a little bit of history, we see if there's any other factors going on. By the time they come to me, there's almost always a psychological element to it as well. Because, And the phrase I use w with men is I say, well, look, if you're spending most of your time wondering if this thing's going to work or not, you may as well go and put the kettle on because it won't. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to get over that. You have to get past that. So with the pharma pharmacological interventions that we've got, and there are several now, uh, it's been great because you can often say to men, sometimes even with um, uh, your tongue slightly in your cheek, look, take this, 
and it's going to sort the problem. Come back to me then and we'll deal with the other issues as well. But the other critically important thing is that I always try and get him to discuss it with his partner and Mm -hmm. we might come on to that. Now, if you've just tuned in, we are talking about sex. It's adult content. So if there are younger ears listening, you might want to listen back to the podcast later on. Trish, let's talk about common myths around sex. Yes. What are they? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> There's probably a list as long as you are, but what are the most common ones? Oh, gosh, there's so many myths. Um, I remember doing a, a programme on this before and, and it's, it's hard to come up with some of the new ones. I think that the idea, one of the biggest issues I have is that people now are very focused on performance that I have to be able to do it in a certain way. I have to be fantastic at it. I have to have the right body for it. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to orgasm in all the different positions and different ways. And that is just incredibly untrue. So the best thing you can have in sex is pleasure. And that might be not having any penetration. It might be just having a really long cuddle and some nice massage. So one of the biggest difficulties is that fear that I'm not doing it right and I'm not as good as everybody else. And that kind of, as you were saying earlier, Stephen, the idea that we measure ourselves against some myth, you know, so if I'm using Viagra, then that's not good enough. I should be able to do this without that. So the myths are a lot around performance, a lot around ideas of what perfection is, of what normal is or what everybody else is doing. And when you're measuring yourself against that, it's unlikely your body is going to respond. Your body goes into kind of grief mode and it goes, ah, more demand, more demand. And so it won't do what you want it to do because you're not working with it. You often work against it. Now, we do have an audio question in here about how do you get a conversation with your partner around what you like and don't like? Have a listen. Hi, Anna. What happens I'm wondering if what I want in the sack isn't what my partner wants. And I mean, how do you even go to talk about likes and dislikes? I'm, I'm wondering about. Thank you. Yeah, so that's a big question. Like, how do you like, because for a lot of people listening, how yeah. do you instigate that conversation, telling your partner what you like and don't like? So it can be really difficult. Now, I have a little, uh, it's a it's a little thing that people can do that is incredibly simple and very useful. And it's called a pie of desire. This woman, Desa Markovic, uh, created it. You draw a pie and you put in all the things that you need to let desire work. So everything from... You know, it might be a glass of wine. It might be to watch a movie. It might be to feel safe and confident. A lot of the time it's about how I feel about myself and how attractive I feel, whether I need mystery, fantasy. And then your partner does one and then you hand them over to each other. Wow. Right. And that'll only take about 10 minutes and you'd be amazed at the kind of conversations you might have following something as simple as that. Like people sitting could actually do one right now and you could be handing it over in five minutes time and you could be in for some very interesting discussions. That's that's very interesting. I'm hoping a lot of people will be trying that. Now, we do have another audio question in about like losing your libido and sex drive. So let's take a listen to that. Hi, Anna. I'm 43 and my sex drive has literally just gone completely I'm very stressed at work I've two boys and my three-year-old is particularly clingy and by the time I get to bed to be honest I'm just delighted to have my own space but I want my sex drive back be happy for any advice thanks Stephen a lot of questions are coming in similar to that so like you know what do people do what can they do when they've lost that sex drive or libido well it's a very common question and again there's a multiplicity of different reasons okay so it could be somebody's age. This happens to men mm-hmm. as well, so it, it, I'm not particularly focusing my conversation or my my, my response in, uh, towards women, although this was a, 
a woman who's clearly having a tough time. Um, I think ideally you want everything, as, as Trish has already said, to be good, to be safe, to be to be pleasurable, to be where you want it to be. And this woman is obviously struggling. She obviously has other issues in her life that are impacting on all of this. And I think where sex is good for somebody, everything else has to be okay. Not necessarily fantastic, but it has to be okay. But she's obviously being pulled by her, her three-year-old. She said she's got a stressful job. And even just her voice um, sounds as if she's under pressure. So probably the last thing she needs is good old-fashioned, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. She probably just needs a big hug. And you can have a big sexual hug without having sex. So there's lots of different things that you can do. So again, Coming back to what Trish was saying earlier on about measuring, I mean, she says that she has lost her libido. So to lose something must be compared to what? To, to some mythical situation that she thinks, that she, or some mythical position, rather, that she thinks she should be in. And everybody's different, and we all vary from different times in our life, different impacts, different things that are going on. So I think it's a matter, probably, of just trying to get as many of the other things sorted and spending some time looking at the sexual end of things, but not necessarily putting that as your number one thing that needs to be dealt with or talked about. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. She sounded so tired. I think, you know, a cup of tea would probably be, go a long way. Mm. But there is something about, you know, what makes us feel attractive. So what makes her feel attractive? Mm-hmm. And if it's going for a spa day, if it is buying something nice and silky, then that is going to help her feel attractive and the desire will start to rekindle. But obviously she needs some sleep. And if she got away for a holiday for two weeks, she'd be surprised about what she might Mm -hmm. uncover and what she might feel after something like that. Now, we we do have two of the same team question in here as well from two women, like, and it's, you know, straight and direct. What is the best way to orgasm? Because it takes me a while. Another one said, why can't I orgasm from penetration? This like a lot of a lot of questions have come in similar to these. So like, you know, either of you who wants to start, like what is the so what is the best way to, to deal with this question? So orgasm is is the joy in sex. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to be motivated to have a lot of sex without orgasm. So it's really important to ask that. Um, anxiety is anti-orgasm. So if you're very anxious, it's unlikely you'll be able to let go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the first thing you really need to investigate some of that. Um, there's no right or wrong way to orgasm. It's very individual to the person. Um, but I would say there's a really good book by Emily Nagoski, which is called Come As You Are. And the whole book is about it. But two points in it that it might be worth noting. One is the term sexual accelerator, like what makes me feel sexy and feel mm-hmm. like engaging. And then you have the other, which is my sexual breaks, which may be past experiences, maybe not feeling great about my body. So you work on the accelerators and you try and ease off the brakes and work at those. And particularly if your partner knows about those, you have a much better chance of getting someplace. And just working through even some of the questions, you're like, could pain be an issue? Because <clears throat> some people are, are asking that question about pain and, you know, is it related to libido and, and your ability to enjoy sex? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, pain can be an overriding thing. It could be physically overriding, it could be emotionally overriding, it could be mentally overriding. So pain is something else. But if we're talking specifically about, say, certain types of pain, so for example, vaginismus, which is where the vagina goes into spasm mm-hmm. and penetration is either impossible, difficult or painful or all of the above. Um, that's usually an anxiety related thing. So it's one of these situations where somebody says to themselves, is this going to work? 
well, the last time it didn't, so it's unlikely that this time is going to work. So you end up in a cycle, um, and it can be difficult to break the cycle unless, as say, you, you, you start cycling backwards and finding out how or where or when this all started. Now, again, there's a number of different treatments, um, but certainly pain is just occupying um, when, when, when you're trying to empty your mind or to, to engage in pleasure, which is essentially what sex is about. So another question that was a similar theme was about porn and the impact of porn and sex and on relationships. So we got a message in, is watching pornography harmful to a sexual relationship or when someone is single? Now, that was a man, but I suppose, I mean, you know, in, in general, like what is the impact of porn and sex? Well, uh, um, porn is with us and we'd be crazy to think it isn't. Um, so... So the answer is, it depends on loads of things. Obviously, porn is not dangerous or difficult if you're enjoying it and if you've got consent to watch it and all of those things. Um, the difficulty is when you're relying on porn for, for everything. Um, and that's when it's problematic. Everybody knows it's not real. Everybody <coughs> knows. So... Every kid knows that, not to mind an adult. But do, but but, do they know it's not real, though? Yeah, I, I think the research done with young people, quite young people, they know it's not real. However, that doesn't mean they're not influenced by it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's little or no consent. There's nothing about uh, long relationships in porn. So, so it's not giving a good picture about relationships. It, but it may be useful to people. People can use it to be turned on and it can be very helpful. But there are difficulties and some people can go down rabbit holes and get stuck in obsessions. And that's when it can become really problematic. And uh, you you mentioned earlier on. Oh, yes, Stephen, you have something to say. No, I just want to say something else that, that, that the, the research basically indicates that it's probably, as Trish has already said, not particularly harmful. What is harmful is the addiction to porn. Mm. And that's where I mean, any addiction, whether it's booze, whether it's cigarettes, whether it's whatever. Mm-hmm. But Addiction to porn is a major problem because people spend inordinate amounts of time, money and all sorts of other things and it can really start taking over their lives. So that is a real caveat as far as I'm concerned. Well, we actually had a question in earlier about um, porn and how to broach the subject with their partner about watching too much porn and if it actually was one of the contributing factors to erectile dysfunction. So like it's a very awkward topic to bring up. So like how can you do that? It's almost a topic in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really complicated. Um, and I think that men's attitude and women's attitude can often be quite different to it. Um, I, I, I'm not going to try and guess what women might be thinking mm-hmm. about it, but it's not a positive experience, I think, generally. Some women like porn. That's not to say that, that, that nobody does, but women feel all sorts of things. And Trish would be much better able, I think, to, to elucidate this than I can. But um, men men dabble in it. And, and, and if they dabble, it's probably no big deal but that's not necessarily how this how their partner will see it okay oh i think look we got to talk about it i would love if every family in the country started talking about porn and i'll just tell you a story about this myself i was on the radio talking about porn many years ago and my son was 10 at the time and he'd heard it and we were sitting at the dinner table and he said that thing you were talking about it happened to me and i went oh my god and i thought so 10 I need to talk. We need to talk about this. So I went on a big campaign to talk about it with his classmates, with his, with his, the, the mums and dads. And we started talking about it and everybody benefited, I have to say. So we need to talk about it and we need not to be afraid because we're making it harder for just about everybody. And particularly kids don't trust us that we are able to talk about it. So they don't tell us.
Yeah, it's like, again, hopefully it's all about opening up those conversations mm. and just, you know, normalising the conversations because people are talking about it. We just mm-hmm. need to talk more openly about it. There is a, a question that's coming here as well. Is it OK to have the same repetitive sex if we both enjoy it? And like, there's lots of questions mm. in that general area about, you know, is there such a thing as good sex or bad sex? Or how do I know if I'm doing a good job? Much like <laughs> what you were saying earlier on about that performance anxiety. Like, yeah. so is, you know, is it is it OK? Oh, God, yes. And long may it last. Um, (laughs) It's really interesting. The new shame is about having vanilla sex. There's a new shame that I don't do it hanging from the ceiling. And, uh, you know, we've got to get away from this. It's not about performance. It is about pleasure. Let us take it back. I mean, we used to, when we talked about sex, we talked about fear, biology and reputation. And then we moved straight over to performance and we skipped the middle bit, which is full of fun and lightness and pleasure and do whatever you want and not do it also if it's pleasurable. Yeah, I I, I completely Mm. agree. Um, It's whatever floats your boat. And there's no right, there's no wrong. If it gives you pleasure, that's absolutely fine. Um, And... If it's vanilla, so what? Yeah, you know. And and if and if people do want to reignite a spark or spice things mm. up or however you want to say it in the bedroom, have you any like quick tips for people and where to start? I have. Oh, great! <laughs> so look, this is a very simple idea. Okay, so you get six cards. And each of you write down three things that you'd like to, you'd enjoy as sensual pleasure, and then you shuffle them and you pick one and you do that. Okay. <laughs> Right. And, and you go you go through all six and you just. You, you well, you know, then you can expand. I mean, start light, okay. you know, but it's fun and, you know, you don't know what's coming up tonight and it can be lovely. It can be just a bit of fun. Um, but it's it's even to do it is good. Okay, can I mention one thing of just course. before we go? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who are not having any sex mm-hmm. and there's no sex in their relationships. And for some people, that's absolutely fine and they have lots of affection and love and it's great. But other people are ashamed of it or can't talk about it. It's really common. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a kind of a sentence that I come across, which is that I love you, but I'm not in love with you. And there's a lot of people caught on that place. So it's not bad enough to leave, but it's not really good enough. And I think that's tough on people. And I think it's really important they get into that conversation. And I know it's a mess and I know it's difficult. <coughs> But at least if you have conversations about it, you might find that actually you're both happy to be there. And if you're not, maybe you could go and get some help. Stephen, you were I, I just wanted to add to that. I agree with what Trisha's saying, but I think it's perfectly OK if you don't have sex in your relationship, if that's what you're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't have to measure yourself against anybody else. Um, if you do and it's it's fine. And if you don't and you're OK with it, then happy days. And I know you mentioned that book earlier on from Emily Nagoski about Come As You Are, um, but also as well, there is a book out there uh, for men, The New Male Sexuality, The Truth About Men, Sex and Pleasure by Bernie Zig- Zilbergeld. And that, that book has been many, many editions. It's mm. very good. It should be a shelf on, it, on the shelf of every household. Well, there you go. Yeah. That is, it is important to do that. And I suppose like, just for anybody listening before we finish up, any is there any big takeaway message that you, you want to give to people listening? I suppose mine is going to be if you like being you and you like being in your own skin, you're going to have good sex. It's going to be good. So it always starts there. Don't try to be somebody else and don't wait until you get the perfect whatever it might be. Start now and enjoy it. 
I think my take-home would be that sex evolves. Um, sex you have in your 20s is different from what you have in your 40s, which is different from what you have in your 60s, and maybe even different from what you have in your 80s. Um, again, it's, it's whatever you can do with your partner um, and what gives both of you some pleasure. Well, thank you so much, psychotherapist Trish Murphy and GP Dr. Stephen Murphy for answering so many of your questions. We had a lot more, but we'll have to revisit those another time. Now, coming up, I will be speaking with Leah Bryans, a pelvic physiotherapist, about some of the physical issues when it comes to sex. Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1. We are talking about sex on the show this evening and with me now is Leah Bryans, a pelvic physiotherapist based in County Kildare. Leah, welcome to Supercharged. Guess like what kind of sexual issues do your pa- patients present with? Well, hi Anna, thank you for having me here. And um, yeah, so patients can present with painful issues where they actually come first of all saying sex hurts and mm-hmm. I need some help with that. Or it may be that it just arises through other consultations about um, maybe pelvic floor weakness like urinary incontinence or prolapse or something like that. So sometimes we find it as a an afterthought maybe. So that's a good place to start because today is about giving giving people tips, giving people advice. So let's talk about prolapse and incontinence, you know, even what are the reasons for it and then what are the, the treatments and tips that we can give? Okay, well, to try to be concise there, um, often urinary incontinence and prolapse can arise after pregnancy. That would be the most common time that we will will see patients present. And one of the reasons could be to do with pelvic floor weakness or Mm -hmm. it could actually be just hereditary changes, particularly with prolapse. Sometimes it's absolutely nothing anyone ever did wrong or anything that Mm -hmm. ever happened. It just is the way their body is put together and some people are more at risk of prolapse than others. So you have a tip to tighten those muscles. Can you take us through it, please? This, of course, is for men and women that may be suffering from this. So the pelvic floor fills in the space between your legs, basically. So it's not very easy for anyone to see it. And so we have to be a bit descriptive with the way that we teach these. (laughs) So I want you to all imagine that you have male anatomy. And if we're just a little bit trivial here and we say you've got dangly bits. Okay, so you're walking into the sea, freezing cold water. Water is coming up your legs and I want you to think lift the boys. So you really get this sense of everything drawing up and inside your body. Okay. And to further bring that towards the very front of the pelvic floor, we could say, and no man wants to hear this, but I want you to imagine you're trying to shorten your penis. Okay. So again, very graphic, but hopefully if you've tried that and you think lift the boys and shorten the penis, you get a very strong contraction of the pelvic floor from the back all the way to the front. And I believe you also have <laughs> your next tip is about remembering the magic number. Tell us yeah, more. so it's, you know, once you've cracked it, that you figure out how to lift and let go again. We People often will ask, well, how often do I have to do this? So some research done years ago came up with this magic number that you do them three times a day for three months. And each time that you practice, you try and do 10 quick contractions and 10 short ones. So moving on then, because I'm conscious of time and trying mm. to get as much in as possible, you also mentioned like painful sex, mm-hmm. you know, so like, like how common is that and how can people deal with it? It's really quite common, I would say. Um, and I suppose common, not normal. That's the big thing to remember with okay. pelvic floor issues. Um, 
I think uh, the speakers before me, uh, the Murphys, both uh, touched on on maybe why it can be a psychological issue. It can often be as a result of trauma, whether that's birth trauma or perhaps an unwanted sexual encounter. So there's a lot of things to work through. The physical part of it is, I suppose, a tight muscle or a, a tight group of muscles. And um, we work on helping to relax and to release those muscles. And like for a lot of people then, is there anything in particular they can bear in mind for that? You know, is there any tip that you can give them about that relaxing and releasing? Well, um, deep breathing is probably one of the easiest, most effective things. Um, Taking a really lovely big deep breath into your belly, feeling your belly fill up with air. um, Almost imagining your tummy's like a beach ball. And as you breathe in, your tummy rises, your waist widens and your pelvic floor relaxes and drops. And uh, one of your tips as well is about like it can, using lube can can combat those. Yeah, Um, sexual dysfunction and pain with intercourse can not only happen just after birth but around the time of menopause and that's often down to lower levels of oestrogen so uh, Dr Murphy mentioned before topical oestrogen can be helpful and that's really important for women maybe in the perimenopausal years but regular uh, lubrication is really important too. And just quickly you have said as well about treating constipation. Yeah so if your pelvic floor is very tight it can become painful with intercourse but also really difficult to actually empty the contents of your bladder or your bile particularly the bile so constipation and painful intercourse can often go hand in hand. And I know of course taking up Pilates or yoga as well can both stimulate the the pelvic floor to work and to relax. I know I, I do Pilates and I couldn't speak highly enough about it so I would you know I, I know for, from you you're you're a big fan of that also. Yeah it's an excellent form of exercise. I suppose it's a bit of a Goldilocks it's just right. <laughs> <laughs> Nicely done. Well Leah thank you so much for all of those tips. You will find Leah on Instagram at Leah Brian Physio. Supercharged with Ali Geary on RTE Radio 1. And joining me now in studio, Hugh Hick has once again been scouring the web. He's been collecting the biggest health stories that have been creating a buzz this week. Hugh, thank you for coming in. Lovely to see your face. Tell us, what are the stories? What have you got for us? Well, I don't know if I can match any of the takeaways we've got over the last wonderful hour, but we have been talking about sex, so it would be remiss of me not to uh, mention the big news story of the week and a real game changer uh, that the HSE has announced that a free national home testing service for tra- uh, sexually transmitted infections for those aged 17 and mm-hmm. over has been expanded to all counties in the Republic of Ireland. You might have heard, of course, this was being trialled last year, but it's now going to be happening nationwide and it's um, going to be free for 17 and over and it's very very simple to do all you have to do is order one sign up for it uh, you complete the test at home they then post the samples back to the lab in a prepaid envelope and you'll get your results back by text or phone and they'll even um, redirect you to a clinic if you need to be assessed further and you can go to sexualwellbeing.ie uh, to find full That's details great. of that such an important step for people's sexual health so um any more good news for us yes because of course it is autumn we're all getting maybe a little bit um spluttery and coughy but of course for many people uh, coughing isn't just a seasonal thing it happens for them all year 
year round. And there is some hope because um, Professor Surinda Bering, a leading lung doctor, has been taking part in a trial uh, or leading a trial uh, of a new drug that reduces a person's coughing by up to 60% and brings some relief to up to 70% of people who uh, take it. Uh, the trial participants slept better, had fewer chest pains, were less tired and able to go about their lives. And if this drug is approved, it'll be the first one to be approved for chronic coughing in over 50 years. Oh, wow. Mm. And again, like as you said, like a lot of people coughing nowadays, we get so worried and we hear people coughing. So it's good to hear that 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 is there to help. Now, I do believe you've been reading up on our eating habits as well, keeping us all in check. Well, keeping myself in check, Anna, <laughs> because I am definitely one of those people that I just get so caught up in what I'm doing that I, yes, I'm a real terrible one for skipping breakfast and they always say breakfast is the most important meal of the day. I could never skip breakfast I'm not going to lie I, I wouldn't be able to function. <laughs> well you, you'll have to teach me Anna because I'm terrible for it uh, but they have run uh, two tests uh, two studies uh, on eating. Uh, the first one uh, is about people who ate later in the day and they found that eating later makes people hungrier over a 24 hour period than if they consumed the exact same meals earlier in the day. It also meant they burnt calories at a slower rate and that their fat tissue seemed to or more calories uh, on a later schedule than an early one. Then they did a second study, this time among firefighters, because of course they do shift work. Yes. So it's difficult to really... there's so many people out there that do shift work. Myself included, Anna. Mm-hmm. I, not, 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 I'm not a firefighter, but I definitely <laughs> I can, I can um, identify with the shift work and keeping that uh, regular pattern. And they found that uh, consuming meals within a 10-hour window shrunk those uh, really nasty bad cholesterol particles. Mm. So uh, the best 10 hours are, uh, wait for it, between 8 or 9 a.m., up to 6 or 7 p.m. And they found that if you're on shift work, if you can keep your meals within that 10-hour window, it can do lots for you. Oh, well, hopefully those of you that are doing shift work can, can let us know how you get on if you try that. And now lastly... There has been a buzz around TikTok this week when it comes to our health. A buzz, Anna, or maybe even more accurate say a hum. Ooh. Because our brown noise has been going around TikTok uh, this week. And uh, particularly for those uh, people who might suffer from ADHD, they have found uh, brown noise to be extremely helpful for them. Now, and let's talk first of all, because we know white noise. So what is brown noise? Yes, yeah, so we've probably heard of white noise. And a lot of people say that uh, is helpful in terms of getting to sleep yeah. and in terms of concentration. Now, brown noise is very similar to white noise, except what they do is they just cut out out those uh, higher frequencies. So as I say, it's a bit more of a hum. And uh, don't get thrown off by the brown in the brown noise. It's actually nothing to do with colour. It's uh, named after uh, Robert Brown, who first uh, looked into oh. it. But they found out that the low frequency notes, when uh, put into your ears, uh, maybe through headphones, uh, they actually do. A lot of people have found out that this does help them sleep. As I say, with people in the ADHD community, many of them uh, saying it's wonderful. And uh, they've looked into the science of this. And like white noise, it is great just in terms of like maybe distracting, getting that, that little buzz out of your head and relaxing a little bit more. Oh, well, thank you so much. Plenty of food for thought there, as always. Thank you for keeping us in the loop. Now, if you want a reminder of all the advice given out this evening or any of those book recommendations, you can listen back to the show or any of our other shows at rte.ie forward slash supercharged or on the RTE Radio Player app. Share the link for the savings show on your WhatsApp groups with your friends, siblings, whoever. You never know who needs to hear this episode. Thanks to my team here. John, Louise, Hugh, Owen and Mark and thanks to you for your voice notes and your questions particularly for this evening's show and on next week's show we're talking about chronic pain so get in touch via email supercharged at rte.ie or you can reach out to me on Instagram at Anna G Cork enjoy the rest of your Sunday but for now mind yourself and mind each other Supercharged with Anna Geary on RTE Radio 1